Chapter Four of the Jesus of History by T. R. Glover. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four The Teacher and His Disciples. It was as a teacher that Jesus of Nazareth first began to gather disciples round him. But to understand the work of the teacher, we must have some general impression of the world to which he came. The background will help us understand what had to be done, and what it was he meant to do. Bishop Gore, in a book recently published, suggested that the belief that God is love is not axiomatic. Many of us take it for granted as the point at which religion naturally begins, but, as he emphasised, it is not an obvious truth. It is something of which we have to be convinced, something that has to be made good to men. Unless we bear this in mind, we shall miss a great deal of what Jesus has really done by assuming that he was not needed to do it. Out of a darker world than ours came this new spring. We must look at the world as it was when Jesus came. In a later chapter, we shall have to consider more fully the religions of the Roman world. One or two points may be anticipated. First of all, we have to realise what a hard world it was. Men and women are harder than we sometimes think, and the natural hardness to which the human heart grows of itself needed more correction than it had in those days. Among the many papyrus documents that have been found in late years in Egypt, documents that have pictured for us the life of Egypt, and have recorded for us also the language of the New Testament in a most illuminative way, there is one that illustrates only too aptly the unconscious hardness of the times. It is a letter, no literary letter, no letter that anyone would ordinarily have thought of keeping. It has survived by accident. It was written by an Egyptian Greek to his wife. She lived somewhere up the country, and he had gone to Alexandria. She had been expecting a baby when he left, and he wrote a rough, but not an unkind, letter to her. He writes, Hilarion to Alice, greetings. Know that we are still, even now, in Alexandria. Do not fidget if, at the general return, I stay in Alexandria. I pray and beseech you, take care of the little child, and as soon as we have our wages, I will send you up something. If you were delivered, if it was a male, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. How can I forget you? So don't fidget. The letter is not an unkind one. It is sympathetic, masculine, direct, and friendly. And then it ends with the suggestion, inconceivable to us today, that if the baby is a girl, it need not be kept. It can be put out, either on the land or in the river, left to kite or crocodile. The evidence of satirists is generally to be discounted, because they tend to emphasise the exceptional, and it is not the exceptional thing that gives the character of an age, or of a man. 
it is the kind of thing that we take for granted and assume to be normal that shows our character or gives the note of the day and what we omit to notice may be as revealing in the plays of the athenian comic poets of the third and fourth centuries b c we find to wearisomeness one recurring plot the heroine turns out to be not just a common girl but the daughter of the best family in athens exposed when she was a baby when plato sketched his ideal constitution in addition to the mating of suitable pairs to be decided by government he added that if the offspring were not good enough it should be put away where it would not be found again aristotle allowed the same practice the most cultured race on earth freely exposed its infants and this letter of hilarion to alice a dated letter by the way of september or october in the year one a d makes it clear that the practice of exposure of children still prevailed and there is other evidence which need not now detain us it is a hard world where kind people or good people can think of such things as ordinary and natural evidence of the character of an age is given by the treatment of criminals and that age was characterized by crucifixion they would take a human being spread him out on a cross on the ground drive nails through his hands and feet and then the cross was raised the agony of the victim during the movement is not to be imagined it was made fast and there the victim hung suspended between heaven and earth to live or die at his leisure by and by crows would gather around him i have been good said the slave then you have your reward says the latin poet you will not feed the crows on the cross there is a very striking phrase in st matthew and sitting down they watched him there the soldiers nailed three men to crosses and sat down beneath them to dice for their clothes our tolerances like our utterances come out of the abundance of the heart and stamp us for what we are we cannot easily realize all that slavery meant when we read in the fourth gospel that the lamb of god taketh away the sin of the world that was written before jesus christ had abolished slavery for we remember it was done by his people against the judgment of the business experts slavery meant robbing the man of every right that nature gave him and as homer said long ago far-seeing zeus takes away half a man's manhood when he brings the day of slavery upon him he became a thief a liar dirty and bad and with the woman it was still worse the slave woman was a little lower than the animal she might not have offspring it was natural men said nature had designed certain races to be slaves slavery was written in nature it was nature's law these were not the thoughts of vulgar people but of some of the best of the greeks not of all indeed but society was organized on the basis of slavery it was an accepted axiom of all social and economic life 
as to the spiritual background for the present let us postpone the heathen world and consider the jews who represented in some ways the world's highest at this period modern scholarship is shedding fresh light on the literature and ideas that were prevalent between the end of the old testament and the beginning of the new but what uncertainty about god why some people should think that it was easier to believe in god in those days than now i do not see far less was known of god the record of his doings was not so long as it is for us and it was not so well known no one could understand what god meant if he was quite clear himself look at what he did with the nation he chose israel he established the kingdom of david they did not get on very well and at last were carried away into captivity in babylon so much he did for his people and when he brought them back again to the promised land it was to a very trying and difficult situation and worse still followed after nehemiah's day alexander the great's conquest of the east left a macedonian dynasty ruling those regions and one of their great kings antiochus epiphanes tried to stamp out the religion of jehovah altogether the book of daniel is a record of that persecution about 166 bc the maccabean brothers delivered israel and rescued the religion of jehovah and a kingdom of a sort was established with them but the grandsons of the liberators became tyrants what did god mean out of all the promises to israel to the house of david this is what comes herod follows a foreign king and an edomite and the romans are over all suzerains and rulers in despair of the present men began to forecast the future a time will surely come they said when god will give an anointed one the messiah he will set all israel free he will make israel rule the world instead of the romans he will gather together the scattered of israel from the four winds reunite and assemble god's people in triumph in palestine and then when the prophet paused a plain man spoke i don't care if he does my father all his life looked forward to that what does it matter now if god redeems his people or if he does not my father is dead the answer was why should your father not come with the redeemed israel but what evidence is there for that does god care for people beyond the grave is there personal immortality that became the anxious question but is this kingdom of the messiah to be an earthly or a heavenly kingdom will it be in jerusalem or in heaven are you quite sure that there is any distinction in the other world between good and bad between jew and gentile some people thought the kingdom would be in jerusalem others said it would be in heaven and added that the jews will look down and see the gentiles in hell something worth seeing at last but after all it was still guesswork perhaps was the last word when the question is asked was jesus the messiah the obvious reply is which messiah 
for there seems to have been no standard idea of the Messiah. The Messiah was, on the whole, as vague a term as, in modern politics, socialism or tariff reform. Neither of them has come, perhaps they never will come, and nobody knows what they will be till they do come. Jesus is not what they expected. A Jewish girl at an American student conference a year or two ago said about Jesus, I do not think he is the Messiah, but I do love him. Of course he was not in her Jewish sense. The term was a vague one. The main point was that men were uncertain about God. God was unintelligible. They did not understand his ideas, either for the nation or for the individual. God's plans miscarried with such fatality. Or if he had some deeper design, it was still all guesswork. It seemed likely, or at least right, that he should achieve somehow the final damnation of the Gentiles, the Romans and the rest of us. But nothing was very clear. In the meantime, if God was going to damn the Gentiles in the next world, why should not the Jews do it in this? Human nature has only too ready an answer for such a question. As we can read in too many dark pages of history, in the stories of wars and religious persecutions. The uncertainty about God in Judaism reacted on life and made it hard. Even the virtues of men were difficult. They were apt to be nerveless and uncertain because their aim was uncertain and they wanted inspiration. Of course there are always kindly hearts but a man will never put forth quite his best for an uncertainty. There was a want of centre about their virtues, a want of faith, and as a result they were too largely self-directed. A man was virtuous in order to secure himself in case God should be awkward. There was no sufficient relation between God and man. God was judged, no doubt, but his character could be known from his attitude to the Gentiles. Could a man count on God? And how far? Could he rely on God supporting him, on God wishing to have him in this world and the next? No, not with any certainty. It comes to a fundamental unbelief in God, resting, as Jesus saw, on an essential misconception of God's nature, and this resulted in the spoiling of life. Men did not use God. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, Jesus said, and it was not in God. Men's interest and belief were elsewhere. Now the first thing that Jesus had to do as a teacher was to induce men to rethink God. Men, he saw, do not want precepts. They do not want ethics morals or rules. What they do need is to rethink God, to rediscover him, to re-explore him, to live on the basis of relation with God. There is one striking difference between Christianity and the other religions in that the others start off with the idea that God is known. Christians do not so start. 
we are still exploring God on the lines of Jesus Christ, rethinking God all the time, finding him out. That is what Jesus meant us to do. If Jesus had merely put before men an ethical code, that would have been to do what the moralists had done before him, what moralists always do, with the same naive idea that they are doing a great deal for us. His object was far more fundamental. The first thing was to bring people onto the very centre, and to get there at once, to get men away from the accumulation of occasional and self-directed virtues, from the self-sustained life, from self-acquired righteousness, and to bring them to face the fact of God, to realise the seriousness of God and of life, and to see God. When he preached self-denial, he did not mean the modern virtue of self-denial with all its pettinesses, but a genuine negation of self, a total forgetfulness of self, by having the mind set entirely on God and God's purposes. A readjustment of everything, with God as the real centre of all. This is always difficult. It is not less difficult where the conception of God is, as it was with Jesus, entirely spiritual. The whole experience of mankind was against the idea that there could be a religion at all without priest, sacrifice, altar, temple and the like. There is a very minimum of symbol and cult in the teaching of Jesus, so little that the ancient world thought the Christians were atheists, because they had no image, no temple, no sacrifice, no ritual, nothing that suggested religion in the ordinary sense of the word. We shall realise the difficulty of what Jesus was doing when we grasp that he meant people to see God independently of all their conventional aids, to lead them to commit themselves in act to God on such terms was a still far more difficult thing. To believe in God in a general sort of way, to believe in providence at large, is a very different thing from getting yourself crucified in the faith that God cares for you and yet somehow wishes you to endure crucifixion. How far will men commit themselves to God? Jesus means them to commit themselves to God right up to the hilt. As Bunyan put it, to hazard all for God at a clap. Decision for God, obedience to God, that is the prime thing action on the basis of God and of God's care for the individual. His purpose, that this shall not be merely the religion of choice spirits, or of those immediately around him, but shall be the one religion of all the world, makes the task still vaster. He means not merely to touch the Jews. Whether he says so in explicit terms or not, it is implied in all that he says and does that the new movement should be far wider than anything the world had ever seen. It was to cover the whole of mankind. He meant that every individual in all the world should have the centre of gravity of his thinking shifted. Again, he had to think of a recreation of the language of men, till God should be seen as a new word. Our constant problem is to give his word his value, his meaning. He meant that men should learn their religious vocabulary again, till the words they used should suggest his meanings to their minds. Something of this was achieved when some of his disciples came to him, and said, Teach us to pray, 
as john taught his disciples further he had to secure that men should begin the rethinking of all life personal social and national from the very foundations on new lines what is called a transvaluation of all values with a new centre everything has to be thought out anew into what st paul calls the fullness of christ then finally the question comes how to secure continuity will the movement outlast his personal influence these are his problems large enough every one of them how does he face them the gospel began with friendship and we know from common life what that is and how it works old acquaintance and intimacy are the heart of it the mind is on the alert when we meet the stranger quick and eager to master his outlook and his ways of thought to see who and what he is it is critical self-protective rather than receptive but as time goes on we notice less we study the man less as we see more of him yet in this easier and more careless intercourse when the mind is off guard it is receiving a host of unnoticed impressions which in the long run may have extraordinary influence pleasant and easy-going a perpetual source of interest and the rest of mind the friendship continues till we find to our surprise that we are changed stage by stage as one comes to know one's friend by unconscious and freely given sympathy one lives the other man's life sees and feels things as he does slips into his language and by degrees into his thoughts and then wakes up to find oneself as it were remade by the other's personality so close has been the identification with the man we grew to love this is what we find in our own lives and we find it in the gospels a sentence from st augustine's confessions gives us the key to the whole story sed ex animata alio exenditur alius one loving spirit sets another on fire jesus brings men to the new exploration of god to the new commitment of themselves to god simply by the ordinary mechanism of friendship and love this in plain english is after all the idea of the incarnation friendship and identification jesus has a genius for friendship a gift for understanding the feelings of men look for example at the quick word to jairus as soon as the message comes to him that his daughter is dead jesus wheels round on him at once with a word of courage this quickness in understanding in feeling with people marks him throughout an instinctive care for other people's small necessities is a great mark of friendship and jesus has it we find him saying to his disciples come ye yourselves apart privately into a desert place and rest a while what a beautiful suggestion he himself it is clear from the records felt the need of privacy being by oneself of quiet and he took his quiet hours in the open in the wild where there was solitude in nature and there he would take his friends there were so many coming and going that they had no leisure to eat and jesus says to them in his friendly way let us get out of this away by ourselves to a quiet place 
what you want is rest what a beautiful idea to go camping on the hillside under the trees to rest and with him to share the quiet of the lonely place it is not the only time when he offers to give people rest come unto me and i will give you rest how strange when one thinks of the restless activity of christian people to-day with typewriters and conventions and every modern method of consuming energy and time how sympathetic he is we may notice again his respect for the reserve of other people on the whole how slowly jesus comes to work with men he never rushes the human spirit he respects men's personalities men and women are never pawns with him he does not think of them in masses the masses appeal to him but that is because he sees the individual all the time to one of his disciples he says i have prayed for thee what a contrast to the conventional friend of man in the abstract with all that hangs upon him he has the leisure to pray intensely for a single man it gives us an idea of his gifts in friendship his faith in his people is quite remarkable when we think of it he believes in his followers he shares with them some of the deepest things in his life he counts them fit to share his thought of god he makes it quite clear to them how he trusts them he puts before them the tremendous work that he has to do work more appealing in its vastness the more one studies it and then he tells them that he is trusting the whole thing with them what a faith it implies in their moral capacity what acceptance of the dim beginnings of the character that was to be christian someone has spoken of his apparently unjustified faith in peter what names he can give his friends as a result of his faith in them ye are the light of the world he says the salt of the earth when we remind ourselves of his clear vision his genius for seeing fact how much must such praises have meant to those men think how he gives himself to them in earnest how he is at their disposal he is theirs they can cross-question him at leisure they can tell him that the pharisees did not like what he said they doubt with peter the wisdom of his open speech they criticize him if they do not understand his parable they ask what he means and keep on asking till he makes it plain he is in no hurry he is the master and their teacher and he is at the service of the slowest of them but there is another side to friendship for one great part of it is taking what our friends do for us as well as doing things for them how he will take what they have to give he lets them manage the boat while he sleeps and go and prepare for him and see to the passover meal the women we read ministered to him of their substance there is a very significant phrase in st luke where he says to them at the end ye are they that have continued with me in my temptations he tells them there that they have helped him how apparently by being with him is not that friendship in the same chapter we find an utterance that reveals the depth of his feeling for his friends with desire i have desired a greek rendering of semitic intensive to eat this passover with you before i suffer 
they are to help him again by being with him and he has longed for it he says the gospel of john sums up the whole story in a beautiful sentence jesus having loved his own which were in the world loved them unto the end augustine is right one loving spirit sets another on fire note again the word he uses in speaking to them techna it is a diminutive a little disguised as children in our english version it reappears in the fourth gospel in even more diminutive forms with a particularly tender suggestion the word of mark answers more closely than anything i know to boys as we use it in the canadian universities men or undergraduates is the word in the english universities students in scotland and in india in canada we said boys and i think we get nearer and like one another better with that easy name and it was that easy pleasant word or one very like it that he used with them nor is it the only one of the kind fear not little flock he said do not the diminutives mean something do they not take us into the midst of a group where friendship is real and in the centre is the friendliest figure of all look for a moment at the men who followed him at the type he calls they are simple people in the main warm hearts and impulsive natures the politics of simon the zealot might at one time have been summed up as the knife and plenty of it a simple and direct enough type of political thought in all conscience however hopeless and ineffectual as history showed but he gave up his politics for the friendship of jesus peter again is the champion example of the impulsive nature why jesus called james and john the sons of thunder i am not sure dr rendell harris thinks because they were twins other people find something of the thunderstorm in their ideas and outlook the publican in the group is much of the same type he is ready to leave his business and his custom-house at a word once more the impulsive nature and the simple it is possible that jesus looked also to another type of which he gained very little in his lifetime for he speaks of the scribe who has turned disciple again and brings out of his treasure things new and old the more complicated type of the trained scholar full of the old learning but open to new views in the meantime he draws to him people with the warm heart yes he said but cultivate the cool head again and again he will have men count the cost know what they are doing be rid of delusions before they follow him what did they expect they had all sorts of dreams of the future when we first find them there is friction among them which is not unusual in a group of men with ambitions even at the last supper their minds run on thrones they are haunted by taboos peter long after boasts that nothing common or unclean has entered his lips they fail to understand him are ye also without understanding he asks not without surprise at the very end they run away there then is the group what is to be the method there is not much method as harnack says about the spread of the early church a living faith needs no special methods 
a sentence worth remembering. Infinite love in ordinary intercourse is another phrase of Harnack in describing the life of the early church. It began with Jesus. He chose twelve, says Mark, that they may be with him. That is all. And they are with him under all sorts of circumstances. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. They saw him in privation, fatigued, exhausted. With every chance to see weakness in his character, they did not find much amiss with him. That is surely significant. They lived with him all the time, in a genuine human friendship, a real and progressive intimacy. They were with him in popularity and in unpopularity. They were with him in danger, when Herod tried to kill him, and he went out of Herod's territory. But friendship depends not only on great moments. It means companionship in the trivial, too. It means idle hours together, partnership in commonplace things, meal and garden, chairs as well as books and crises, ordinary life, ordinary talk, gossip, chat, every kind of conversation about Herods and Roman governors and the zealots, custom-house memories, tales of the fisherman's life on the lake, stories of neighbours and home, rumours about the Galileans who were murdered by Pilate. All the babbling talk of the bazaar is round Jesus and his group, and some of it breaks in on them, and his attitude to it all is to those men a constant revelation of his character. They are with him in the play of feelings, with him in the fluxes and refluxes of his thought, learning his ways of mind without realising it. They slip into his mind and mood by a series of surprises, when they are imagining no such thing. Anything, everything, serves to reveal him. They tramp all day, and ask some village people to shelter them for the night. The villagers tell them to go away. The men are hungry and fatigued. What a splendid thing it would be, if we could do like Elijah, and burn them up with a word! So the hot thought rose. He turned and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. What a gentle rebuke! The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Then follows one of the wonderful sentences of the Gospel. They went unto another village. Very obvious, but very significant. A missionary from China told me how, thirty years ago or more, he was driven out of the town where he lived. How the gentlefolk egged on the mob, and they wrecked his house, and hounded him out of the place. He told me how it felt, the misery and the indignity of it. Jesus took it undisturbed. He taught a lesson in it, which the church has never forgotten. Their life was full of experiences shared with him. He has his reserve, his secret. Yet in another sense, he gives himself to them without reserve. There is prodigality of self-impartation in his dealings with them. He lets them have everything they can take. He becomes theirs in a great intimacy. He gives himself to them. Why? Because he believes, as he put it, in seed. Socrates saw that at the teacher's real work, his only work, 
is to implant the idea like a seed. An idea like a seed will look after itself. A king builds a temple or a palace. The seed of a banyan drifts down into a crack and grows without asking anyone's leave. There is life in it. In the end the building comes down, but for what the banyan holds up. The leaven in the meal is the most powerful thing there. There is very little of it, but that does not matter. It is alive. Life is a very little thing, but it is the only thing that counts. That is why the farmer can sow his fields, and sleep at night without thinking of them, and the crop grows in spite of his sleeping, and he knows it. That is why Jesus believes so thoroughly in his men and in his message. God has made one for the other, and there is no fear of mischance. Look at his method of teaching. People marvelled at his words of charm, hung about him to hear him. He said that the word is the overflow of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. What a heart, then, his words reveal! How easy and straightforward his language is! Today we all use abstract nouns to convey our meaning. We cannot do without words ending in ality and anon. But there is no recorded saying of Jesus where he uses even personality. He does not use abstract nouns. He sticks to plain words. When he speaks about God, he does not say the great first cause or providence or any other vague abstract. Still less does he use an adverb from the abstract, like providentially. He says, your heavenly father. He does not talk of humanity. He says, your brethren. He has no jargon, no technical terms, no scholastic vocabulary. He urges men not to overstudy language. Their speech must be simple, the natural spontaneous overflow of the heart. Jesus told his disciples not to think out beforehand what they would say when on trial. It would be given to them. He was perfectly right, and when Christians obeyed him, they always spoke much better than when they thought out speeches beforehand. They said much less for one thing, and they said it much better. Take the case of the martyr, an early and historical one, whose two speeches were, during her trial, Christiana Sum, and on her condemnation, Deo Gratius. With this, remark his own gift of arresting phrase, the freshness of his language, how free it is from quotation, how natural, and how extraordinarily simple. Everything worthwhile can be put in simple language, and if the speech is complicated, it is a call to think again. As a woman, over-curiously trimmed, is to be mistrusted, so is a speech, said John Robinson of Leyden, the minister of the Pilgrim Fathers. The language of Jesus is simple and direct, the inevitable expression of a rich nature and a habit of truth. You feel he does not strain after effect, epigram, antithesis or alliteration. Of course he uses such things, like all real speakers, but he does not go out of his way for them. No, and so much the more significant are such characteristic antitheses as you cannot serve God and mammon, and whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, coming with a spontaneous flash and answering in their sharpness to the sharp edges of life.
his words caught the attention and lived in the memory they revealed such a nature they were so living and unforgettable remark once again his preference for the actual and the ordinary there are religions in which holiness involves unusual conditions and special diet some forms of mysticism seem to be incompatible with married life but the type of holiness which jesus teaches can be achieved with an ordinary diet and a wife and five children he had lived himself in a family of eight or nine it is perhaps harder but it is a richer sanctity if the real mark of a saint is as we have been told that he makes it easier for others to believe in god in any case the ordinary is always good enough with jesus only he would have men go deeper always deeper why can you not think for yourselves he asks signs were what men demanded he pictures Devis's mind running on signs even in hell what could you do with signs look at what you have already you read the weather for to-morrow by looking at the sky to-day the south wind means heat the red sky fair weather study look think his animals as we saw are all real animals it is real observation real analogy when he speaks of the lost sheep it is not a fictitious joy that he describes or an imaginary one it is real the more we examine his sayings with any touch of his spirit the more we wonder of course it is possible to handle them in the wrong way to miss the real thought and make folly of everything thus when he says he is the door the interpreter may stray into silly detail and make faith the key and i don't know what the panels and hinges could be that is not the style of jesus the soul of the thing the great central meaning the real analogy is his concern seriousness in observation seriousness in reflection is what he teaches men and women break down for want of thinking things out many things become possible to those who think seriously as he did and so to speak without watertight compartments jesus is always urging seriousness in reflection seriousness in action too is one of his lessons an emphasis on doing but on doing with a clear sense of what one is about and why a part of the action is clear thought always exactness accuracy you must think the thing out he says and then act or let it alone the artistic temperament we all know is very much in evidence today in the comments of bagshot we are told that the drawback is that there is so much temperament and so little art why because the artistic temperament means so little by itself it is one of the secrets of jesus that it is action that illuminates what is it that makes the poem the poet sees beggar children running races or little edward and the weathercock or something greater if you like the light of the woman's hair or a flower and you say he has his poem he has not he must work at the thing when we study the great poets we realize how these things are worked out to the point of nerve strain and exhaustion the poet devotes himself heart and soul to the work he alters this and that once and again he sees a fresh aspect of the thing 
and he alters all again. He writes and rewrites, getting deeper and deeper into the essential values of the thing all the time. Where in all this is the artistic temperament? It gave him the impulse, but something else achieves the work of art. I have the feeling that the great works of art are achieved by the shopkeeper virtues in addition to the artistic temperament that sees and feels them at the beginning. It is action that gives the value of a thought. Jesus sees that. He says that frankly to his disciples. If you want to understand in the long run, it is carrying the cross that will teach you the real values. I have been treating him almost as if he were an authority on pedagogy. Fortunately, he never discussed pedagogy, never used the terms I have been using. But he dealt with men, he taught and he influenced them, and it is worth our study to understand how he did it, to master his methods. One loving spirit sets another on fire. As for the effects of his words at once, as Seeley put it, they were seething effervescence, broodings, resolutions, travail of heart. Men were brought face to face with a new issue. It was a time of choice. Things would not be as they were. Men must be with him or against him, must accept or reject the new teaching, the new teacher, the new life. As he said, I came to send fire on the earth, to divide families, to divide the individual soul against itself, till the great choice was made, and so it has always been where men have really seen him. We have to notice further the transformation of the disciples, who definitely accepted him. Very wonderful to me, wrote Phillips Brooks, to see how the disciples caught his method. The promise was made to them that they should become fishers of men, and it was fulfilled. Jesus made them strong enough to defy the world, and to capture the world. There is something attractive about them. They have his secret something of his charm. They are magnetic with his power. A new impulse to win men marks them, a new power to do it, a new faith which grows in significance as you study it. The faith of William Carey a hundred years ago was the same thing, a perfectly incredible faith that they actually will win men for God and Christ. And they did, and along his lines, and by his methods of love, even for Gentiles. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel, said St. Paul, who to preach the gospel shipwrecked his life and suffered the loss of all things. But these men are sure that it is worth while. They have a new passion for men and women, an interest not merely in saving of their souls, but in every real human need. The early church made a point of teaching men trades when they had none. They learnt all this from him. The greatest miracle in history seems to me the transformation that Jesus effected in those men. Everything else in Christian or secular history, compared to it, seems easy and explicable, and it was achieved by the love of Jesus. The church spread over the world without social machinery. The gospel was preached instinctively, naturally. The earliest Christians were persecuted in Jerusalem, 
and were driven out. I picture one of them in flight. On his journey he falls in with a stranger. Before he knows what he is doing, he is telling his fellow traveller about Jesus. It follows from his explanation of why he is on the road. He warms up as he speaks. He never really thought about the danger of doing so, and the stranger wants to know more. He is captured by the message, and he too becomes a Christian. And then this involuntary preacher of the gospel is embarrassed to learn that the man is a Gentile. He had not thought of that. I think that is how it began, so naturally and spontaneously. These people are so full of love of Jesus that they are bound to speak. One loving heart sets another on fire. End of chapter 4